Polycarp was born in 69 AD. He was a disciple of John, the John who wrote the book of Revelation. He was a friend of Ignatius, a mentor to Irenaeus. He lived to be 86 years old, old for our day and particularly old for the first and second century. For the second half of his life, he served as the bishop of Smyrna, the second city in Revelation, the one we'll read in just a moment. Polycarp, you may have heard him before in a sermon illustration or in a class. You know, he was a venerable man, highly respected for his holiness, his orthodoxy. On one occasion, it's told when Polycarp came face to face with the heretic Marcion, Marcion asked, do you recognize me? And if the record of church history is to be believed, Polycarp responded, I do indeed. I recognize the firstborn of Satan. <laughs> How to win friends and influence people. <laughs> Polycarp kept a close watch on his life and his doctrine. And he died a martyr's death in 155 A.D., and after he died, the church at Smyrna sent out a letter to, quote, tell the story of those who have suffered martyrdom, especially blessed Polycarp, who as though he had set his seal on it by his martyrdom, brought the persecution to an end. It's a fantastic story. I won't read the whole thing to you. But here's how it begins. After Polycarp was arrested and he's being brought into the stadium, to be mocked, to be persecuted, to be forced to recant, and if not, to die. Now, as he was entering the stadium, there came to Polycarp a voice from heaven, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. And no one saw the speaker, but the voice was heard by those of our people who were there. Thereupon he was led forth, and great was the uproar of them that heard Polycarp had been seized, Accordingly, he was led before the proconsul who asked him if he was the man himself. And when he confessed, the proconsul tried to persuade him, saying, Have respect to thine age, and so forth, according to their customary form. He said, Swear by the genius of Caesar, repent, say, Away with the atheists. Now, pause. You have to understand, because the Christians, unlike everyone in the Roman world, did not have statues, did not have visible representations of their gods, they simply considered the Christians must have no gods at all. And so he's wanting them, wanting Polycarp to denounce the Christians, away with the atheists. Then Polycarp looked with a severe countenance on the mob of lawless heathen in the stadium, and he waved his hand at them, and looking up to heaven, groaned and said, away with the atheists. Love it. But the proconsul urged him and said, Swear and I will release thee, curse the Christ. And Polycarp said, Eighty and six years. Eighty-six years. This is an old man. Eighty-six years have I served him, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And the proconsul continued to implore him and to adjure him that he would swear by Caesar and curse this Christ. And it continues, and the proconsul then says, I have wild beasts. If you do not repent, I will throw them to you. And he said, send for them. 
For repentance from better to worse is not a change permitted to us, but to change from cruelty to righteousness is a noble thing. Then the proconsul again said, If thou dost despise the wild beast, I will make thee to be consumed by fire if you do not repent. And Polycarp answered, and here the translation is using these and thou's, but you understand, thou threatenest the fire that burns for an hour and in a little while is quenched. For thou knowest not the fire of the judgment to come and the fire of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why delayest thou? Bring what thou wilt. And as they were there to fix him with nails to the stake that they might burn him and so that he would not try to run or flee, as they were to nail him to the stake, he said, let me be as I am. He that granted me to endure the fire will grant me also to remain to the pyre unmoved without being secured with nails. And when he had ended his prayer, the fireman lighted the fire. And so Polycarp, blessed Polycarp, as they called him, died a martyr's death. An old man, 86 years old, in the stadium, and his renown would go throughout the region and even down to the present day as we consider one of the faithful martyrs in the history of the church, the Bishop of Smyrna. Now you can do the math. This is a generation or two after the letter to Smyrna that we are to read in Revelation 2. So we do not want to necessarily read the situation for Polycarp back into Revelation 2, but surely it is a picture of something that they were fearing or facing or could potentially experience just some perhaps 60 or 70 years earlier in Smyrna. We read then beginning in chapter 2 at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have the tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers overcomes, victorious, Nike will not be hurt by the second death. Hopefully, one of the things you will notice by the end of these seven churches is that there is a great and seeming paradox. The weak, the small, the poor churches in Revelation are commended the most. The churches at Smyrna in Philadelphia are attacked, they are small, they are weak, they are suffering, and Jesus has nothing to say against them. The only two churches he has nothing to speak against. Whereas the churches at Sardis and Laodicea in particular are described as rich and confident and impressive from the outside, and yet Jesus has almost nothing good to say about those churches. Now, this does not mean that if a church is big and influential and wealthy, that it cannot also be faithful 
And it does not mean that if your church is small and poor, that it is necessarily healthy and vibrant. But it does mean we should not judge a church by the world's measure, by those three B's, your building, your budget, and your bodies, (laughs) your behinds. That's what we gravitate toward. Tell me about your church. What's the budget? Tell me about your facilities, your building. How many bodies do you have there? Now, those are not irrelevant factors. Uh, The Lord uses money to accomplish many things, and we're thankful for buildings in which to gather and meet, and the church wouldn't be much if there weren't people there. And yet, God is reminding us time and time again, you cannot measure your worth. You cannot measure your significance. You cannot measure real poverty and real riches by those measurements. Do you see this glorious parentheses in verse 9? Of course, the parentheses are not in the Greek, but it's giving a, a sense for the kind of statement it is in English. I know your tribulation, Smyrna. I know your poverty. That's what they appeared to the world. That's what perhaps They saw in themselves, we are troubled, we are weak, we are facing tribulation, we are a poor church. And then Jesus comes along and says, but you are rich. That's who you are in my eyes. Because spiritually, you are wealthy. The situation in Smyrna is one of hardship. I know your afflictions, your poverty, says the Lord. This is not an outwardly impressive church. There's more pain than there is money. Perhaps few impressive members in Smyrna, hated, harassed, and in much difficulty. Smyrna has an interesting history. During the period when Rome was struggling with Carthage for supremacy, Smyrna sided squarely with the Romans. It was the first city, in fact, in the ancient world to build a temple in the honor of Rome. In 23 BC, Smyrna won the special privilege to build a temple to Emperor Tiberius. For almost 300 years, Smyrna had a close connection with Rome, a fierce loyalty to the emperor. They had been one of the first to cast in their lot with Rome, and Rome had rewarded them for it. They were seen as a particularly loyal city. But you'll notice Revelation does not blame the Romans for the persecution in Smyrna, but rather blames the Jews. Now, given where we are on the other side of much anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, we tend to be very sensitive to language in the New Testament that appears to be anti-Jewish. But we must remember that the New Testament is not anti-Semitic, it is anti-sin. You must always remember, who is writing this letter but a Jew? I don't know, John, but, but Jesus is giving this. Jesus is not anti his own ethnic heritage as a man, but rather he is opposed to those Jews in Smyrna who are stirring up trouble for the Christians. You see, Roman subjects were required to offer sacrifices to Caesar as God. But the Jews had been given a special exemption. They could offer sacrifices in honor of the emperors, 
not as gods, but as rulers. So from Rome's, Rome's vantage point, they, they probably thought, you know, Rome wasn't you know, particularly persnickety about theological niceties. They just wanted there to be peace in the empire, and they wanted people to, to, to honor the ruler. So they thought, well, okay, if, if, if you want to offer sacrifices, and you want to call it an honor to the emperor as a ruler and not as a god, then we'll give you an exception. The Jews have been around for a long time. You're scattered throughout the empire. We don't want to make trouble. They gave them that exception. It was a way for the Jews and the Romans to coexist. But two things were happening by the second half of the first century. Number one, starting with Nero, Christians were being persecuted. As long as Christianity was seen as just some strange sect of Judaism, there was little trouble from Rome. They had had to deal with the Jews for a long time, and this is just another one of their Jewish supposed messiahs and another little branch. We have Pharisees and Sadducees, and we have Zealots. We have all these different groups, and as long as they don't stir up trouble, they're another insignificant sect of the Jews. But under Nero, new religious groups were particularly suspect, and Christianity was now being seen as not so much just a Jewish sect, but perhaps its own new religion, and therefore dangerous, and therefore something to be opposed by Rome itself. The second thing that was happening in the second half of the first century is that many of the Jews had compromised with Rome. You can understand how this would happen. The distinction over time of what you're doing when you light the fire and offer your sacrifice and go through some ritual oblations and, and here, oh, uh, emperor, is this sacrifice in your honor as ruler? That, that gets pretty muddy. What's going on really in your heart and what's going on with your speech that the two become elided very quickly and so many of the Jews had compromised and it was no longer a strict separation. We're just honoring him as a ruler, just giving him the allegiance we ought to as, as our emperor. But they were doing what everything and everyone else did. It looked the same. It sounded the same. And there was no real distinction. They had no qualms, many of them, about revering Caesar along with their Old Testament God, whatever it may take to have peace. And so you put those two realities together, and you can see how easy it would have been for some of the Jews to instigate Christian persecution. All they had to do was remind the Roman officials the police force, that Christianity is a new religion. It's not just a sect of Judaism. And have you noticed they're not offering their sacrifices to the emperor? And if that didn't work, you could always slander the Christians, make up lies about them. It would have not been difficult for the Jewish people or for anyone, for that matter, to rat out the Christians and call down Rome's Wrath. That's why in this letter there are such hard words for the Jews, not anti-Semitic, but anti-sin. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, speaking after all. These are counterfeit Jews. Those who are Jews say they are, but are not, verse 9. So there's another indication that this is not some anti-Semitic tirade, but rather this is the same sort of theology that Paul will explain in Romans chapter 2, that there are some who are Jews outwardly, but we know that truly to be a Jew is not simply an outward thing. It's not just a matter of circumcision or who your mother was, but to be a real Jew is an 
inward disposition of the heart, just like Paul can say in Romans chapter 9. There are some children of Abraham who are not really children of Abraham. They were not doing the Lord's work, but they were doing the devil's work. And that's why they are called a synagogue of Satan. And incidentally, do you notice the interplay between God and the devil in this passage? That God knows what will happen, verse 10. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days, whether that is here to be a literal 10 days, or it's 10 is symbolic of a, of a short duration and period of time, but be faithful unto death. So on the one hand, God is not caught off guard by what the devil may be instigating here. He fully understands this is what is going to happen. He sees it. He knows it. He even oversees it. And yet, this persecution can rightly be ascribed to the devil. He is the one who will throw the Christians into prison when they will stand trial or await execution. Just as in Job, the hardship is the Lord's intention, but it is the devil's action. So God is not culpable for the evil, though he knows it, though he may sovereignly superintend it, even ordain it, but he is not the doer of it nor the actor of it. It is the Lord's intention, but the devil's action through wicked men at Smyrna. And think about that language. We, we, we have trouble speaking this way. And you would be Im immediately labeled as a religious zealot, as an extremist, to speak about synagogues of Satan and to attribute hardship to the Christians as the work of the devil. And true, we must be careful with unnecessarily inflammatory language, and yet this is true biblical language. And may it be possible that even in our lifetimes, we will see Christians in this country put in prison for their faith. You don't have to, you know, go through too many news feeds to find examples of Christians suffering for their faith. That's not the persecution that they were facing in Smyrna. We don't pretend that it is. But here you see that the work perhaps may be in a proximate sense from the courts. Perhaps it's from a hostile Congress. Perhaps it is coming down from some executive order from a hostile president someday. Perhaps it is from some agency or institution or some local ordinance or city council seeking to push Christians out of their buildings or out of the public square or out of the marketplace. But make no mistake, Jesus says it's the work of the devil. It is the work of the devil. Why? Because the devil would love nothing more than to silence Christians, keep Christians quiet. And if he can make you quiet by giving you unbelievable prosperity, Laodicea, so be it, as long as you're silent. And if he can keep you quiet by facing persecution and opposition, and making you afraid, then he will do that. But do you see the comfort that the Lord gives? It's shot through with encouragement. I know 
your tribulation and your poverty. You hear, hear those, those simple words? I know. I always think of one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible from Exodus chapter 2. Remember the, the people are groaning, they're crying out to the Lord because of their bondage to sin. And we read in verse 23, Exodus 2, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. There's no, no direct object there. Just simply an absolute word, God knows. Doesn't that sometimes make all the difference? It doesn't solve it. It doesn't remove all the pain. Isn't that what you want sometime? You're talking to your husband or to your wife. You don't want them to fix it. Okay, guys, yeah. <laughs> it's not about the nail. Look it up. I want you to, to say, I, I know, I know. Isn't that what you want in a, in a friend, in a parent? I remember when I was in, was it seventh or eighth grade, and my grandmother died suddenly, and at that age, that was you know, the, the, you know, the, the person closest to me that had ever passed away and was crying. I remember the spot standing there in, in my home, still my parents' home, and... My dad, as tall as me, great big guy, not, not a, you know, known for, you know, great displays of emotion, but just standing there as I was crying just sort of swallowed me up and gave me a big bear hug as if to say, I know, I know. That's, that, that, that's what I needed in that moment. That's what the Lord gives us. And here... Just like with the slaves in Exodus, Jesus says in verse 9, listen, I know the Lord sees your broken heart. He knows your fear. He's not ignorant of the tears that you have shed for your marriage, for your wayward children, for your grandchildren, for your dreams that have not come true, for the diagnosis that you're fearing. He knows and he knows your desire, and I hope it's your desire, to be steadfast in the midst of that. Do you ever have these moments? I do. I seem so overwhelmed with life and so many burdens and in the midst of so many crises or controversies. And I just want to say, God, do you know that I'm trying? Do you know? One of my cousins said that on the family, our family crest, it says, we mean well. <laughs> Sometimes I just want, God, I, I know I'm not perfect. I, I know I'm, I'm getting things wrong. I know I'm a sinner. But as far as I know my own heart, can you see, I am, I'm trying trying to, to, to love you. I'm trying to love my church. I'm trying to love my family. I'm 
trying to repent of my sins. I'm trying to be faithful. And you need to know and I need to know that God knows. He knows your desires. He knows when you have desires for better desires. Jesus wants you to know not only that he knows, but who it is that knows. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. If your spouse knows, that helps. When your friends listen, that's nice. But when Jesus knows, there's reason for hope. Because he was before your hardships and he will reign long after your hardships. He who once died himself and came to life again knows that you will die and you will live again. Therefore, the command that we have in verse 10 is the same command that John was given when he fell before Jesus as though dead. He says to Smyrna, do not be afraid. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Part of the sting of suffering is the fear of suffering itself. I'm scared of suffering. I'm 41 years old. I think if you were to somehow measure out all the, you know, the suffering of all 41-year-olds in the world, I have to be quite near the bottom. I've had a good life. I've had hurts and pains and people hurt me and loved ones die and unexplained bouts of illness and I fear suffering. Sometimes if, you, if you're the sort of person who's had a lot of suffering, you think, well, God just has it out for you. And sometimes if you feel like you haven't had much suffering, you think God's going to wake up one day and say, wait a minute, he hasn't got his fair share. <laughs> and you're afraid. I don't want to pray. I don't want to thank God for too many blessings. Or he's going to say, whoa, whoa, Gabriel, hold up. Turn off the blessing machine over there. We've got to even this out. And we fear, we fear suffering. And you know what that is in your heart and my heart? We don't believe that God's a father who loves us, who always does and wants what is best for us. And even in those difficulties is teaching us, refining us, shaping us. And so we're, we're surprised and we fear, might God be against me somehow? And I'm just some cosmic voodoo doll in his plan. Well, we will suffer it does hurt, but Jesus will be there, sympathizing with us, interceding for us, reigning over us. So the first command given here to Smyrna is, do not fear what you are about to suffer. And then you see the second command at the end of verse 10, be faithful. In, in, in miniature, that's what he has to say to Smyrna, to every church, to every Christian in the midst of tribulation and affliction. Do not be afraid. Be faithful. Be faithful in persecution or whatever kind of suffering you experience. Now, does be faithful mean you just grin and bear it, you suppress it, you push it down, way down deep, the cold never bothered me anyway? No. It's be faithful means we believe the promises of God because suffering and temptation are linked. 
know if you've ever noticed that. It speaks of that when Jesus faced temptation, it was the temptation of suffering and the suffering that brings about it its own temptation because in suffering, you're tempted to doubt all sorts of things, tempted to doubt that God loves you, that he's for you, that God's good, that he's sovereign, that he's paying attention. And you're tempted to disbelieve the word of God. And some people do. They make shipwreck of their faith because their lives have been shipwrecked. But Jesus calls us to overcome, to praise him in pain, because he who overcomes the present, the temporary, the fleeting, will not be hurt by the second and the everlasting and the eternal death. So be faithful. Do you know what courage is in the New Testament? I don't know if this line is original to me. It's probably not because it's such a good line, but... Uh, I came across it over and over again. It just kept coming to my mind when I was preaching through Acts years ago. Because you know in in Acts chapter 4 when the disciples, Peter and John, are persecuted and they, they come back and they're released from their stint in prison and they tell the church there and they begin to pray and they tell them what had happened. And you think, if, if I had just been beat up for my faith and I'm brought back to my church and Pastor DeYoung's back and let's have a prayer meeting, you know what I'd pray for? I pray for religious liberty. And that's good. Thankful for everybody working for that. Uh, I, I pray for the, the, the king or the president to change his mind or for the laws to be changed. I pray for an end to our suffering and an end to the persecution and all of those things you'd be right to pray for. But do you remember, of course, what the church prayed for? The, what, the, the one thing we, we know they prayed for? Boldness. You know what boldness is? It's not a personality type. Some of you say, I'm not very outgoing and I'm naturally meek or timid. And other people, they are full of bravado. No, boldness is not a personality type. To be bold is to be clear in the face of fear. To be clear in the face of fear. When people ask you for a reason for the hope that you have and you have every temptation to dissimulate, to to shade the truth. The church of Smyrna was called to be faithful to be clear in the face of fear, not to offer up their sacrifices to the emperor, not to give in. You see, Smyrna is a church of paradox. They are poor, but Jesus says you're rich. They're persecuted by Jews that Jesus says are not really Jews. Some of them will die, and if they die, they will get the crown of life. If they overcome in the first earthly death, they will not be hurt by the everlasting second death. It's a church of glorious paradox. And perhaps that is the same paradox evident in your church or in your life at the moment. Poor, weak, struggling, suffering, and yet bold, clear, strong, overcoming. Let us close with five ways to apply these two realities. Do not be afraid and be faithful. How might we apply these commands to Smyrna in our own churches? I have five points of application in closing. Number one, let us pray for the persecuted church. Pray for the persecuted church. Martyrdom has been and always will be the reality in Christ's church. You know the scene in Revelation chapter 6, the martyrs underneath the throne crying out, how long? 
And the answer is, until the number of the martyrs is brought to completion, apparently there is a set number of elect martyrs that must be fulfilled before the end will come. And every time there is that new death, that new martyrdom, it is one soul, one step closer to their number being fulfilled. Now, this will vary in different centuries and different places, but it's always been the case that the church will be called upon to make a good confession in the face of danger and hostility and sometimes death. From the time of Jesus to the year 2000, I know that's almost 20 years ago, but it's a nice round number, there have been roughly 36 billion people on the planet. Now think about that. We're, what, over 7 billion now, so uh, a, a fifth of the people who have ever lived are living right now. Of those 36 billion who have lived in the past 2,000 years, 12 billion, this is by the, the I think, the World uh, Christian Encyclopedia, and these are by the broadest definitions. They estimate 12 billion, so a third, were evangelized. 8 billion of those called themselves Christians, at least nominally so, so a very broad definition. Of those, 70 million have been martyred, or a little under 1%. That's surprising. Some Christians, admittedly, were killed by other Christian groups. Some were killed by Islamic groups, but far and away, you know, the, the number one killer of Christians throughout the centuries, the state. Some 55 million out of the 70 million Christian martyrs have been put to death by the state. 45 million of those 70 million were killed in the 20th century, more than all the other centuries put together. Almost half of those were murdered, starved to death, or died in prison camps in the Soviet Union. Currently, 160,000 Christians are martyred every year. 0.8% of all Christians in history have been martyred, a percentage that has actually remained relatively constant over the centuries. That's roughly one out of 120 Christians. That's a lot. One out of 120 Christians. That's five, six people in this room. We ought to pray for our brothers and sisters who will lose their life because of the testimony of Jesus. Pray for them in Iran, Afghanistan, Sudan, Malaysia, Indonesia, North Africa, parts of India, China. We ought to pray that God will give us steadfast courage should we face persecution. We ought to pray that we would not in the West grow fat and flabby as a church should we not face the same persecution. I can't take any credit for that. It was just the habit when I came to my church a year and a half ago that in the bulletin every Sunday they have uh, a, you know, a little box of births, deaths in the congregation, and then they have another box where we pray for another church in our presbytery every Sunday, and then in that box is a prayer for the persecuted church. And so the pastor in the pastoral prayer every Sunday is praying for the persecuted church. I want to add to that box also an unreached people group that we would pray for every week. 
but it's such a good practice to pray for the persecuted church, to remember our brothers and sisters in chains facing opposition on the run in fear for their lives, even this very day all around the world, that we would remember them in prayer. Number two, second point of application, be faithful even in our limited kinds of persecution. For years, I would really hammer people for saying that they were facing any sort of persecution in the United States. I mean, come on, read Smyrna and Polycarp and Boko Haram and all these things happening around the world. We're not facing persecution. People, you know, they say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas and oh, we're to our fainting couches for the persecution that we're facing. Yes, we can be a melodramatic bunch at times. But then as I looked at the language of Scripture more carefully and preaching through the Beatitudes in particular, I realized that the Bible does have a fairly broad definition of what persecution might look like. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's verse 10 in Matthew 5. And then here's verse 11, which I take to be something of an explanation, of an amplification. Well, what does it look like to be persecuted for righteousness' sake? And Jesus says in verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So certainly, if you think persecution is of a threat to your life, death, dismemberment, imprisonment, then almost no one in our context is facing that sort of persecution. But if you have a broader definition, others who revile you, who hate you, who utter all kinds of evil against you, who say things falsely about you on my account, then many of us, perhaps all of us, ought to be facing this sort of opposition. You want to know one of the scariest verses in the Bible? When Paul tells Timothy that if you de whoever desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted doesn't say whoever desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus and moves to some faraway place and lives in a jungle somewhere, but everyone will be persecuted. If your faith has never cost you anything, you must ask whether it is genuine faith or not. Because even if you live in the deep south, even if you are in the buckle of the Bible belt somewhere in this country, if your faith is genuine, if you have the real Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, you will come against people, maybe even of your own church, maybe even in your own family or workplace, who revile you for what you believe. So be faithful when you face ridicule in your philosophy class or English class or biology class. Be faithful when you return to your family for a reunion or for a holiday and they don't understand your faith. Be faithful as you witness to your neighbors and they think it's strange that you're a Jesus freak and you go to church all the time, strange that you would 
Raise your kids the way that you are. And kids, young people, be faithful among your peers, even when they can't imagine why you wouldn't take a drink or take a hit or see that movie or use those words or believe what you believe about marriage. Be faithful when you face illness or disease. It's not persecution, but it yields the same temptation, the temptation to disbelieve God's promises, doubt his goodness. Be steadfast in the face of persecution. Number three, do not fear hardship. Let us not lose sleep because we're not sure that we will be as strong as these men and women. Don't you, you, you hear something like Polycarp and you think that's amazing and then you think, ah, what is that? It's a superhero? And stands there, I don't need the nails. <laughs> you know, and he's about to die and he's ripping off zingers away with the atheist. <laughs> I think I'd never be faithful. Then Jesus tell the disciples, don't worry about what you'll say on that day. The Spirit of God will give you what to say. The way now to prepare for any persecution later is simply faithfulness now. For whatever faithfulness God calls to you later. You know, you've had so many people, who, uh, people you know who go through immense physical suffering or loss and they'll say, I never could have imagined that I would survive, that I would make it through this, that I would keep praising God through it. But he's given me a grace that I never knew possible. Don't worry about the troubles that are coming or may come for sufficient for this day is the grace of God. God gives you grace for this day. So don't expect grace for Sunday when you're on Saturday. When you get to Sunday, he'll give you grace for Sunday. If you have to face this opposition, this persecution, he'll give you grace on that day. Rely on his grace for this day. You know this verse from Hebrews, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That is the most intractable kind of slavery. When the devil holds you in bondage by the fear of death. If you fear death, it's not because you have a demon of fear or a generational curse or you lack the gift of faith. It is because we doubt the promises of God. Now, death is a great unknown. And many strong Christians have come to it with some doubts. Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt but this sort of trembling, this sort of incapacitating fear means that we have not fully understood or appropriated the completed work of Christ. So do not fear hardships. God will have grace in that day. Number four, and this is for parents, of whom I am one. Do not be afraid for your children. What... What is it to be a parent but to be perpetually afraid? <clears throat> I remember 15 plus years ago, the first time with our firstborn, when we moved him probably all of 20 feet from our room in the pack and play next to us to a crib in his own room. It was a, it was a house of 900 square feet. It was tiny and it went 
before Tiny House was a thing. And um, <clears throat> it was just a pastor house is what it was. And we just went over this far. And my wife was bawling. <laughs> and it dawned on me in that moment, this is what it means to be a parent for the rest of your life. <laughs> it is. It's letting go. It's sending off. It's giving away. And at first, it's just down the hall. They're not next to me. Now, I mean, by the eight kids, it's, can we, is there a barn? Can this child go? <laughs> we have like turb, you know, turbine engines blowing white noise in our room. <laughs> the children sleep so well now, we don't hear them at all. But there, it's, it's, it's the fear. And you know the fear that we have as parents. Think about this. How many young people perhaps were kept away from doing a hard thing in some hard city or kept away from some hard place on the mission field because parents were too afraid to let them go, to send them off. Easy for me to say, right? They're all under one roof. They're all under one roof. <laughs> so yeah, if they want to go off to Timbuktu, I'll, I'll probably cry too. That's hard. Or maybe it's you, maybe it's you when you, in, in your retirement age and you think, what am I going to do? And you decide, you know what, in, in this age where everything in me wants to stay and wants to be here with all the grandkids and no, no shame in that at all, you think maybe God is calling us to go somewhere else and leave them behind. Do not be afraid to send the ones you love the most. Which is easier to give? Your money or your children. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, and he will win the battle. And finally, number five, remember death is not the enemy. It is an enemy, where, O oh, death, is your victory, where, O oh, death, is your sting, but is not the enemy. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Jesus said, rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. If we could only live, if I could only live knowing deeply this one true fact. Death is not avoidable. The second death is. Or to put it a little differently, death comes to us all. Heaven does not. Most people live as if the opposite were true. Heaven comes to us all, maybe if I take these pills and I exercise enough, I won't die. We don't consider that, as far as I can tell from the latest statistics, 100 out of 100 people die. And many of us spend our time with that singular, futile aim in life. Everything in life is that I might not die. Do not waste your life by living simply to avoid death when you cannot avoid it. When Jesus would have us live that we might not die a second hellish death, but be given the crown of life, glorious, joyous, second eternal life. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, James tells us, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are not academic words for us. They are very life and blood. And for some people in this room, 
is not simply about persecution that may come or suffering that may be there, but it is about what they're facing right now, this morning, barely hanging on. So help them and help us to know that you know, that you see, that you care, and you call us not to be afraid, but to be faithful. We are not strong in ourselves. We cannot do it of our own. By your word and by your spirit, enable us to do all that you command of us. In Jesus we pray, amen.